Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. This is Neil Foster of Freethink, and you are listening to the Fifth Column Podcast. This week's recording is a bit of a departure from our conventional romp through the news cycle. Uh, We've got another one of those dedicated conversations with a person who has an important idea uh, that is beginning to gain some circulation. Uh, It is the universal basic income. So it's an old idea that really is beginning to gain some some new currency in a lot of different circles. Prominent people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg have endorsed this idea. Um, There are trials of it that have been happening in various parts of the country. Um, And one person in particular, uh, 2020 Democratic presidential hopeful, um, has actually been pushing a version of this uh, as really a, a foundational component of their presidential platform. It's something that I've gotten a lot of questions about. It's something that I've, I've had some questions about and that I'm generally not in favor of. I thought it might be a good idea for the two of us to sit down and talk for a bit uh, and you'll get an introduction and a bit more detail on the ideas uh, that we're going to discuss in a moment. Before we get into this dispatch, I did have a little bit of housekeeping to do. One brief announcement. Uh, This March 15th through 17th, I will be in Washington, D.C. with my very good friend Thad Russell for his Renegade University weekend. Uh, Thad is a history professor. He's also a podcaster. He hosts something called the Unregistered Podcast. Um, And if you are a longtime listener to this podcast, you've certainly heard Thad uh, on this podcast before. Um, I always love hanging out with Thad. Uh, Always love talking with Thad. He has a lot of ideas. uh, And if you know him, Uh, you certainly know that he has a lot of bad ideas. I'm using my fingers and sort of making some air quotes. In either case, if you are in, around, or relatively near to Washington, D.C., or if you are just absolutely out of your gourd and desperately want to come spend uh, some time with myself and Thad, uh, would love to meet you in person. And you can find some more info about the event at ThaddeusRussell.com. There, and that's what's out of the way. Um, So, We're going to get right into the program, uh, and I may have a few things to say after the recording is over, but here you go. Uh, Today we are talking to Mr. Andrew Yang. He's an entrepreneur. He's the founder of Venture for America. He's also a Democratic presidential candidate for the presidency of the United States um, in a very, very crowded 2020 field. Andrew has sort of set himself apart from the rest of the field uh, and I wouldn't say he's a single issue candidate. He has an entire policy platform. If you go to his website, you can actually peruse this and check out a lot of the details of it. But there is a particular issue that he ends up talking about a lot, um, and it's automation. It's the fourth industrial revolution. It's the advent of and perhaps just the continuing development of artificial intelligence. And he has been highlighting the potential consequences of this fourth industrial revolution and what it might mean for a lot of working Americans and has a policy proposal that is, he hopes, likely to address this problem, a universal basic income program. Uh, As I understand the program, Andrew, it's $1,000 a month that would be paid to every single American above the age of 18, regardless of their income or need. And it is essentially an attempt to try to mitigate the harm that is likely to be caused to many, many Americans who would be displaced in the event 
that we do see a great deal of innovation over the course of the next couple of decades and they cannot find work because they say are low skilled employees and they drive trucks, they work in retail um, and their jobs have perhaps been replaced or eliminated because of the evolution of technology. Am I, am I getting it about right? Are there important details of that particular proposal that I'm overlooking? Well, you're getting it essentially right. Uh, and uh, though there are a few things that I'd, I'd love to flesh out uh, a little bit. And one of the, the things is that it's definitely a response to the changes in our economy um, that are being driven by advancing technology. But if you look at the human level, if you put $1,000 a month in the hands of families, uh, you see children's health and nutrition improves, graduation rates go up, mental health improves personalities actually change to become more conscientious and agreeable uh, in children because their households function uh, in more structured ways. Uh, domestic violence goes down. Hospital visits go down. So it's definitely something that we need to do because of uh, the advent of AI and, and increasing automation. Um, but it's not that, oh, this is just so that truck drivers don't riot. I mean, this would actually make people's lives better very, very quickly in the day to day, uh, on the personal level and on the family level. And anyone listening to this, if you can imagine what you do with a thousand dollars a month, um, I have a feeling that you know what you would do and it would probably relieve some stress and it would help you start making plans for the future. Even if you're not in immediate danger of having your job replaced. The second thing is that none of this is speculative anymore. And the reason why I'm driven to run for president on this is that it, it, you have to try and figure out why did Donald Trump win in 2016? And I spent six and a half years working in 18 cities in the Midwest and the South, primarily. And I'll tell you why he won. He won because we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states he needed to win and did win. Those states lost 4 million jobs to automation over the last 18 years or so. And those communities have not recovered. I studied economics in college. And classical economic theory would say, well, those 4 million manufacturing workers would get retrained, reskilled, find new jobs, the economy would grow, and all would be well. But if you go to those communities, or you dig into the numbers, you find that almost half of them left the workforce and never worked again. And of that half, half of them filed for disability, pushing the disability rate up in this country to the point where now there are more Americans on disability than work in construction as one example, 20% mm -hmm. of working age adults in some counties. Uh, and then they started to kill themselves in record numbers, uh, eight drug overdoses an hour now, suicides at record levels to the point where both of those have now surpassed vehicle deaths uh, in America and have brought down our life expectancy over the last three years. Uh, American America's life expectancy has declined uh, for the last three years, for so the first time in 100 years. The last time it happened was the Spanish flu mm -hmm. in 1918. So if you think of automation and artificial intelligence as around the corner and we have to keep an eye on it, you're missing all of the uh, steps that got us to this point. And now artificial intelligence is truly going to take off. And you don't need like artificial general intelligence. I mean, all you need is to just look up and say 30% of American malls are going to close in the next four years. And working in retail is the most common job in this country. Uh, the average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making between 11 and $12 an hour. Generally, you don't have a college degree. Yeah, high school graduate. So if you look at the educational 
attainment in this country. 32% of Americans have a college education. 42% if you include associates, degrees. The average American is a high school graduate who maybe did a semester of college and decided it wasn't for them. So the majority of the workforce is comprised of high school graduates, and they work in one of five sectors, mainly. Administrative and clerical work, including call centers, Mm -hmm. retail and sales, food service and food prep, truck driving and transportation, and still manufacturing. So uh, those jobs comprise about half of American jobs, and it does not take any great breakthrough or any great leap of the imagination to see that each of those job categories is going to shrink a great deal in the coming years. So I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff here to unpack. And I'm specifically interested in both the conversation around automation and AI, um, both with respect to what's already happened and what's likely to happen going forward. But I'm also interested in, in the sort of economics of the proposal um, and the rest of your, the rest of your proposal. Cause I know that you have, Thoughts on education, on marriage, on a range of other issues. In fact, also on the NCAA, uh, which perhaps is under-discussed. I fully agree with you. NCAA basketball and football players and anyone else should have the ability to get paid. It's, yes. it's obscene that they can't be. Yes. So it's point of agreement there. Yeah. Um, but with respect to this particular proposal, I mean, $1,000 a month for every American above the age of 18, this, this sounds very expensive. Um, And as I understand it, you would imagine paying for this with a value added tax. Um, Could you talk about the cost of the plan and what why you suspect it's worth it? Sure. So. uh, So the entire U.S. economy is at 20 trillion dollars, up five trillion in the last 12 years. Um, And so if you think, hey, $12,000 for every adult, that's about $3 trillion. That sounds like a whole lot of money, even in an economy as vast as ours. But if you start breaking down the costs, the price tag comes down a lot very fast. When you start realizing that we're already spending $1.5 trillion a year on Social Security and 126 different welfare programs of various various kinds and amounts – Uh, And so if you stipulate that this freedom dividend, and I'm running for president, uh, let's say I win in 2021, and then we start making this dividend available, uh, people who are already on existing programs will then have a choice to choose the dividend, but if they choose the dividend, then they will forego existing benefits. And And that's across all programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, anything? It, it excludes Medicare and Medicaid. Okay. Like the healthcare elements are distinct. Okay. But then if you're getting essentially an in-kind or cash uh, substitute, mm-hmm. like a, a housing voucher or heating oil or sure. something along those lines. Um, and so what you'd see is that the number of people that decide, you know what, the dividend is not superior to my current suite of services um, would be significant. But then that brings the price tag down a lot. It also brings the price tag down a lot if you're currently getting, let's say, $700 in benefits and then you choose the dividend, then that's not a $1,000 cost. It's $300. Mm-hmm. So the $3 trillion shrinks very, very quickly down to something like $1.8. And this is, I, I would imagine, both state and federal monies that you're getting or just federal dollars? That it, yeah, it's both. Out. Because a lot of the times the federal, you know, it's like pushing money to the states and the states dispense. Mm-hmm. So it, it's from either. Okay. So that sounds a little bit more like the negative income programs that someone like Milton Friedman had advocated for, or F.A. Hayek actually, I suppose, advocated for something a little more similar to that. But those programs would phase out as you earned more money. You would imagine this being sort of a flat rate of money. And the only thing that would impact whether or not you get $1,000 or something less than that is if you're already 
taking money for other programs. Yeah, if you're thriving and making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can still get a thousand dollars a month, um, and it, it doesn't matter to us in, in the sense that you want to avoid all of the cumbersome administration and uh, figuring out. It's like, hey, did your circumstances change? Like, mm-hmm. hey, like, are you going to make money and not report it to us so you can like get your you know like you get rid of all of that stuff. Um, and as you said, Hayek was for a version of this. Milton Friedman was uh, for a version of this. And you would see you would actually decrease enrollments in traditional welfare programs really substantially over time uh, because, one, many people would prefer $1,000 unconditional to a program that has various reporting requirements and monitoring and uh, paperwork and administration. Uh, and two, if someone turns 18 and they're on the freedom dividend, then uh, you know it may be that they never end up entering or enrolling in, mm-hmm. in these other programs as they would be offered. So... Uh, so it shrinks the price tag a ton. Uh, and then the, the rest of the money that gets put into our hands in a country where 78% of us are living paycheck to paycheck and 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. Most of the money is going to get spent on things like car repairs people have been putting off and school loans and tutoring and food for your kids, the occasional night out in the hardware store. And that money just circulates over and over again through the economy. It would end up creating... Uh, 2 million plus jobs in the U.S. and growing the consumer economy by 8 to 10 percent. And then we get some of that money back in new tax revenue. Uh, so this is the trickle up economy. Fiscal multiplier is, I think, what we would call that in an economics context, right? Yeah. When the yeah, government completely. spends money, the fiscal multiplier is theoretically supposed to increase the value of every dollar that the government spends because you you can see it circulating through the economy. And I think that's that's kind of an, a Keynesian sort of notion, this aggregate demand notion, demands driving economic growth in some sense. So we get a lot back a lot of the money. And so one of the examples I use, if I gave Jeff Bezos $1,000 a month, it would add literally zero to the economy because you'd just be changing one digit in one of his accounts and no one would even notice. <laughs> like it would have like no impact. But if you give $1,000 a mm-hmm. month to 85% of Americans, a significant proportion of that money is going to get plowed right back into their local economy mm-hmm. and then circulate several times over. So I've got two questions related to to what you just reviewed there. I mean, the first is with respect to the administration of the program. And you mentioned that it would have to exclude any other federal monies that you're getting. So there is going to be some sort of administrative overhead related to figuring out how much money people are collecting and keeping track of how much money they're collecting and then making these freedom dividend payments to folks. So there is some calculation that's necessary. There's some bureaucracy that's associated with that. And it's not as though other entitlement programs that involve payments to people for services have not been inundated with fraud. So that is a, a well, potential the great risk thing here of a program like, How like can this. you possibly defraud a program that's essentially unconditional unless you're receiving other benefits? Well, that's just it. Yeah. yeah. If you're receiving other benefits. Uh, and, and so, Or you're collecting it on behalf of fake people, which is sort of another thing that happens. Yeah, you have to make sure there are no fake people. Uh, but uh, I think that is something that we could fairly uh, effectively and efficiently uh, guard against. You know, it's like because certainly the incentives to defraud um, the government are no higher in this instance than they are in many, many others. Oh, no. But I mean, it's a pretty significant part of the challenge that exists with certain other entitlement programs where they're there has been extensive fraud yes. that can't and, and, be wrung out of the system. And it's very likely that if this program is administrated by the same folks who are administrating those other programs, that it's at least a possibility that that is one potential 
difficulty that would have to be overcome in implementing something like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm very confident that over time, one, you would end up lowering enrollments in traditional welfare programs because, again, a lot of people would prefer $1,000 unconditional to a whole suite of other benefits. And that, two, because you're really not trying to monitor behavior or income uh, or, or anything uh, that attaches a condition, that the administration of this is much, much easier and more lightweight than anything that we're currently doing. I want to come back to the aggregate demand um, sort of component of this and perhaps talk about the the particular economic circumstance that you described earlier, which, I mean, it does sound like quite bleak. And certainly in certain parts of the country, we've definitely seen manufacturing jobs that have left the country for various reasons. And in other cases, jobs that have been automated. But as I've heard you point out in a number of instances, and we've called this the fourth industrial revolution, yeah. we have seen this sort of thing before at least with respect to innovation driving a lot of change throughout the economy um, in our own lifetimes. Um, I'm presuming that we're close in age. I think you're 44. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not too far behind you. We've seen technology transform the employment landscape. I've had several jobs, all of which would not have existed 40 years ago. Um, and I'm probably among the first people to do some of those jobs. Right now we're doing a podcast and some people make a living doing this sort of thing. Um, these are careers that we certainly could not have anticipated coming into existence. And they are opportunities that were created by virtue of innovation, actually. Oh, yeah. I'm very working alongside these innovations. That, yeah. Right. So and I know you are and I know you're aware of a lot of that. And I suspect you're also aware of the fact that a lot of our predictions about the future and what technology is likely to yield like end up being wrong. Sure. There were there were bold predictions about how little the phone would be used, about how the, the Ford was unlikely to be successful because the horse is here to stay and the car is not predictions about YouTube. Um, and how this wouldn't be particularly interesting because how many cat videos are you actually interested in watching? According All sorts of industries <laughs> have been revolutionized in ways we couldn't imagine. And some of those predictions were made within years of these things of taking disturbed. off sure. in ways we didn't expect. So when I look at the the some of the same projections that I know you've looked at, I think you cite the McKenzie study on your uh, website where you talk about a third of jobs that might be leaving the country by 2030. Yeah, it's pretty um, soon, huh? 11 years. Yeah, but it's a range. The McKenzie proposal has a spectrum of possible outcomes from losses of zero, by which they mean we're actually gaining jobs and possibly losing a third of the jobs. Now, this is a it's a huge right. delta between those two positions. And I, I wonder about a proposal that is primarily looking at sort of the most severe downside risk and, 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 and so, is essentially built for that. No. So this is part of it, Camille, is that like, I, I'm just looking at the numbers that they are right now. Mm -hmm. Like as we're sitting here together, we're in your 10 of an expansion and the U.S. labor force participation rate is 63.2%, close to a multi-decade low and the same levels as Ecuador and Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And that's now in, in times that are supposed to be some of like the best times you can imagine where in like this, you know, supposed boom time. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are going to be millions of new jobs that get created, but they're going to be for different people in different places, sure. different skills than the than the people are getting displaced. And so if you go, if you wanted to say to someone, hey, climate change is real, you might bring them to Antarctica. 
if you wanted to say to someone, hey, automation. Probably not a good idea because if you go, I've I've been, it's very cold and there's a lot of ice and it's hard to believe that that's likely to change down there. Or maybe maybe Alaska, (laughs) like a glacier that doesn't. Yeah. Um, if you want to see what happens in the aftermath of automation, you know, you, you go to certain places in the Midwest and the South and you look around, you're like, what the heck is going on here? Um, and, and so you know that the waves are going to end up uh, destroying certain communities and ways of life. And you know that they're going to be beneficiaries, but the beneficiaries will likely be different people in different places with different skills than the ones that are being lost. Could be. And, and so if you look up and say, okay... There are going to be stark, uh, stark losers in this process on a scale that, uh, you know, even if you look at past industrial revolutions. So like the the major industrial revolution people think of is like the around the turn of the century. Um, And Mm -hmm. even then you saw because of factories and assembly lines and the rest of it, um, you saw mass riots that killed dozens of people and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. You saw the origination of labor unions in 1886 that uh, came up to agitate for worker rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You saw Labor Day become a national holiday in response to mass riots. You saw universal high school get implemented in 1911. Um, and so if you look back on that industrial revolution, it was not a fun time. Like there was like literally like anarchism and uh, and, and and other things were actually like viable, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like political philosophies um, during this time. And they implemented universal high school in part to try and bring bring social order. Uh, and Bain and others think that this fourth industrial revolution is going to be three to four times more severe in terms of worker displacement. Uh, than that one. And mm-hmm. so even if you use history as your template, you would expect this to be extraordinarily rough for a significant body of Americans. Mm-hmm. And so then you have to ask yourself, it's like, okay, am I really so trusting in the invisible hand in the market that it's just going to magically fix it all? Uh-huh. And then number two is like, do I believe that the government can actually administer a program that's going to turn half a million truck drivers into software engineers. No. <laughs> and, and, and so if you don't believe either of those things, and uh-huh. I don't believe either of those things, then you start thinking, okay, then mm-hmm. like what's an actual meaningful solution that you can implement that the government could actually deliver on? Because the government is bad at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so you have to single out. It's like, well, what is the government good at? And one of the only things the government is good at mm-hmm. is sending large numbers of checks to large numbers of people promptly and reliably. So then you say, okay, mm-hmm. if we lean into that core competency, can that help ease this transition? If you make it a right of citizenship, that's actually feels kind of fair. It's like, hey, I'm a citizen. I'm an owner and shareholder of this country. Mm-hmm. I get a thousand bucks a month, according to President Yang, <laughs> where, you know, we're the richest, most advanced economy in the history of the world. Like uh-huh. everyone gets it. Sure. President Yang actually doesn't have a bad ring to it. I just want to acknowledge oh, thank you, that thank straight you. away. <laughs> um, you know, you can look at the the facts on the ground. Uh-huh. You start seeing the pattern where, okay, like why did the labor force participation rate drop? Well, it turns out it's hand in hand with the displacement manufacturing workers, where it's a lot of men who were in those uh, blue collar professions that are, are getting pushed out. And a lot of folks who have ended up on the disability roles, as you Same. indicated earlier as yeah. well. And then well, you have the rise of Trump and then you have all of this like animosity and this sure, the social tension, anguish, et cetera, you yeah. know, I mean, it's all very consistent with the same narrative. Um, and so then you say, OK, like, do I think Donald Trump's election is like business as usual or it's an emblem to the accelerating decline of our civilization? Mm-hmm. 
I would say it's probably closer to the latter. And then you say, okay, if Donald Trump is a symptom of this economic insecurity, this disease, this displacement, then what are the treatments for the disease? And there are very few effective treatments. And one of the things that I'm completely in agreement with, it's not like $12,000 a month is going to solve all these problems. It's not. No. Um, But what it is going to do is it's going to supercharge the resources available to individuals to be able to manage this transition for themselves and their families. But also a lot of that money is going to go directly into nonprofits, religious organizations, volunteer organizations, arts, creativity. How, how is that? People will give it to them, you're saying? Oh, yeah, man. If you take the average town in, in Missouri of 50,000 adults mm-hmm. and then I'm president and there's another $50 million in consumer buying power in that town so You're presuming month, the, the aggregate. Okay. Yeah. Then, then are, you know, do you think that church is going to have more, uh, you know, contributions in the till that well, Sunday? Like, yes. Do you think the local nonprofit's going to all of a sudden, you know, and then do you think the local nonprofit's then going to be like, hey, you know, there's some real problems here. Like, you know, we, we should try and do something. So you end up transferring resources into the hands of people that are closest to the action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't pretend that the government's going to somehow like send someone to that town in Missouri and make it all better. Well, I think this is part of the the challenge, though. The the supposition at the beginning of this is that to the extent there has been displacement that's taken place and the outcomes haven't been particularly good, it's likely to not be particularly good in most places. And you were talking earlier about the textile um, industry uh, during one of these earlier waves of the Industrial Revolution. Um, earlier industrial revolutions, I should say. And certainly what's what happened there is there was a fear that the robots, the machines were going to take people's jobs. But the reality, however, was that when these machines came into place and dramatically lowered the cost of production, that demand increased pretty profoundly. And there were more jobs afterwards in the same industry and more output. And the stuff was cheaper the dividend that existed there wasn't, you know, a new program that was created. It was this incredible surplus of goods that were being produced at a much lower price. And one of my sort of related concerns here is to the extent you are creating a program that is giving people money and making the transition easier, right? It, it's also making it easier for them to continue doing things that the economy is giving them indications you probably don't want to keep doing this. You probably don't want to keep doing this. You need different skills. You need different training. There is a distortionary effect in taking $12,000 per human being here in the United States. And if we're sort of discounting it from the, the entitlements that are already being given, then it's certainly not nearly as large as I thought when we first sat down. Um, but it's still a pretty substantial chunk of the gross domestic product that is being directed at this program. And that is essentially when you say, when you say program, though, think mm-hmm. about what we're talking about, mm-hmm. you're talking about putting the money into citizens hands. But it's still so, taking so it, the so money from from one purpose to another. And I know but what like, you suggested but earlier, you know, you know is if I mean, it's, it's in like, Jeff Bezos's account, he's not doing anything with it. But that's just it. There there are multiple theories about the, the way economic growth is facilitated. And one of those theories and one of those realities, I'm sure, you know, is banks investment institutions, they take this capital and they lend that money out. And because of fractional reserve banking, they lend that money out multiple times. And the way we actually get growth isn't people spending money, like just giving someone money doesn't create anything. The way we get growth is by expanding 
our productive capacity, inventing new amazing things and yeah. investing that capital in smart, intelligent ways. Well, that's it's it's very hard for us to do centrally. The market helps us figure out the best places for that money to go. And I, I mean that in the abstract, because at the local level, I have something interesting that I'd like to invest my money in. But if it's being taken away from me and I'm Jeff Bezos um, in order to fund a program like this, then that stuff never gets developed. You never have the opportunity to, to see the things that might have emerged in a, in a world where that investment might have had an opportunity to work. Instead, the money is transferred into a program, which not a program into a consumer's hand. I'm fine calling it that, but I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a euphemism. It's a program that's transferring money into people's hands. There are costs associated with administering this program, and there are necessarily going to be some potential downside risks of abuse and all sorts of other things. But yes, some people who are injured will get this money and they want that money. And I'll, I'll tell you this, and, and, candidly, here's, my, here's, my mom is one of the people who you would almost certainly be interested in helping. My mom has been unemployed for well over a decade and I've paid most of her bills. Um, where did she live? In Maryland. Oh. Um, and she worked for a consulting company and she worked behind a computer most of the day. And it was the sort of things where she had specialized on a very specific sort of platform and never really developed the broader set of skills that were necessary for her to be able to compete and sort of move on to another employer afterwards. This is a huge problem. And it was a, a massive strain on me earlier on in my life to be able to sure. sort of help yeah, man. navigate That's this. Doing that. um, but I mean, it's what we do as family. Um, but if my mom is just getting a check to sort of stay in her current circumstance, then the interest in the opportunity to perhaps might be there. You might be getting cash, but the interest in going out and finding some of these other opportunities to develop new skills is at least potentially diminished. This is at least one possible risk of a program like this, is it not? Well, in, in your mom's case, I have a suspicion that if she was getting $1,000 a month, it's not like her job would still exist, right? No, but I mean, the incentive to go out and get training so she can find something new might be diminished. Well, I would suggest that if that, anything, that money. The, the, her ability to access like additional resources and training would be enhanced by the fact she was a thousand bucks a month. But in, incentives and ability are different things. So her ability might be enhanced, but her incentives might be diminished. And it's possible for those two things to happen simultaneously. You know, I, I'm just not a huge believer in extreme financial scarcity as like the necessary position to be in in order to induce someone to try and find something to do. It's like most people, in my opinion, will try and find something to do um, because they want to find something to do. And it's not like, oh, I'm not going to die tomorrow. It's like, oh, I don't need to do anything. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and the studies bear that out where it's not like getting a thousand bucks a month dramatically changes work levels. It doesn't. It only changes work levels for two groups, new mothers who spend more time with their kids mm -hmm. and teenagers who graduate from high school at higher levels. Mm -hmm. um, so, so to your earlier thoughts about, hey, this is going to um, end up weakening market dynamics. So the, the first thing is you put money into people's hands. The market continues to very much thrive and exist. If anything, you might be strengthening the market because then you have more people with buying power in their hands and then they can express their preferences in the marketplace effectively and then you can continue to find things to do that serve them and the second thing is that you would end up unlocking this whole array of uh, human potential that right now is being suppressed and locked into place by the fact that they are you know like 
uh, trapped in some job that they re- like genuinely don't have an interest in or their family doesn't have the financial resources where uh, someone sent me a statistic where like the highest scoring high school students from the bottom income quintile hmm. are less likely to graduate from college than the lowest scoring kids from the top mm-hmm, income mm-hmm, quintile. Mm-hmm. And so I've you seen know, some, some numbers like that. Before so, you as well. know, that's like this massive value loss in human capital. Sure. Because there are these kids that were clearly more talented than a lot of the folks who are able to access various opportunities that did not make it because, uh, you know, of, of economic circumstance. So to, to me, you're, uh, you're going to end up creating hundreds of thousands of new entrepreneurs guaranteed if you have something like the Freedom Dividend, because there's so many Americans who'd love to take a shot. Now, you could argue it's like, hey, like maybe some of these people should not be being entrepreneurs, like maybe some of them. But you'd wind up with like a really significant number of diamonds in the rough. And the way our system works is that like a number of diamonds would actually potentially create so much value that it doesn't really matter what happens, you know, what, what happens with like the five people next to them. Mm -hmm. And so there would be, to me, if anything, like an unlocking of human capital that would end up enhancing our uh, system's dynamism. Um, And also the fact that people are able to express their preferences in the consumer market would not be taking away from like the Jeff Bezos's ability to, you know, like to innovate or allocate capital efficiently. It would just be bolstering it. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to actually talk about the education uh, piece of your platform a little bit um, It's because you just mentioned it. But there's one other piece of this conversation that I wanted to perhaps try to extend a little bit further with respect to the the amount of money that we're talking about here, you know, thousand dollars, as you said yourself, this isn't going to lift people out of poverty who they don't have any other income whatsoever, but this could make a difference for them. Granted, especially in a household, because if you've got like two adults, I mean, who are both getting it, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And if you've got a a young person who's still living at home, then, and they're above 18, that could also be $3,000. That is a huge deal for that family. Granted, which again, I think perhaps goes to the, point that I was making before about incentives and whether or not you go out and find another gig, whether or not you do more once you're in a circumstance that's that secure. I, I don't know. And I don't know if if not doing anything and receiving compensation for not doing anything is the sort of thing that's actually going to enhance people's sort of sense of self-worth if that's part of our concern. I'm not sure. I just don't know. I mean, it, it it's certainly possible, but it seems at least reasonable to acknowledge that it might go the other way. But the, but the question I have about this is what's to stop people from demanding, insisting on more? Like why stop at a thousand dollars? Why not make it 2000? Especially if the theory here is that this is just going to cycle through the economy and it's essentially not really taking any money away from anyone. It's just giving us more money. You stopped at a thousand for a reason, but you could just make it 3000 if it essentially, theoretically, could be just paying for itself. I suspect that there's a reason we don't go higher, and it probably has something to do with the fact that it might have this multiplier effect, but then again, it might not. Well, you know, I I consider myself a very uh, data-driven, empirical type. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after I become president, we're going to pilot this in various communities of various sizes and um, 
densities uh, around the country. And I have a feeling we're going to see the same effects that you've seen in every other environment where, again, people's physical health, mental health, community ties, stress levels um, uh, all improve. Uh, and if you have second order economic investment that's sustained, then you'd see work levels improve, too, in terms of job creation. And if you look at it and say, hey, there are some sort of negative consequences to expanding this population wide or that um, we need to possibly squeeze out certain inefficiencies of the, of the government before you make uh, additional investments in mm -hmm. this light, then that's, to me, a much better place to be in. And one, one of the things, too, it's like the way we open this conversation is that if you think about... Um, if you think about the consequences of being right and the consequences of being wrong, the way you framed it. Mm -hmm. So if I'm generally right that artificial intelligence is going to get rid of a significant proportion of the call center workers, the truck drivers, the retail workers, uh, some of the fast food operators, some of the insurance agents, the back, like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that we're already in the midst of this transformation that we're not addressing at all because people, the politicians just have their heads in the sand or looking the other way and just talking about something else. Uh, and you get it wrong, then then this is ultimately disastrous for our society. And again, our life expectancy is declining, mental health problems, suicides, drug overdoses, all at record or multi-decade highs. Mm -hmm. uh, we're disintegrating. Mm -hmm. And so if you decide to say, well you know, let's just wait and see. Uh, and you wait too long. It's not like society will reconstitute itself. It's not like if I get there a decade too late and I'm like, Hey, I'm ready to cut the checks now. Then like everyone will put down their guns. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, like going too late is potentially catastrophic. And then if you say, okay, if I go too early, then what are the downsides? Truly? Let's, let's see. I just alleviated untold pointless human misery. Uh, you know, I'm giving my people and my institutions and economy uh, time to adjust and adapt to the fact that now everyone has a certain amount of buying power. And then you end up with these new organizations that spring up in communities around the country that, that are designed to try and meet that community's needs, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we'd learn like that. There'd just be this tremendous learning. And so if you come uh, to me and say, hey, X years in. Like, here's what we've learned, and then here's the direction you can take, and then if people want this, then what does that mean? I would say that's actually a fantastic place to be. Yeah. I mean, I could paint a bleaker picture of what the downside risk might look like. I mean, a VAT tax is how you plan to pay for this. It's a very efficient tax um, in the sense that it, it extracts money from the economy and is very hard to avoid. It's the sort of thing that's necessarily going to raise price levels for consumers unless you institute some sort of price controls. Um, which means people are getting a little bit of extra money, but they're paying for this program. The employers are playing or the pro providers of various goods are paying for this program. So they're raising their prices as well. Um, and there is a, a desperate demand for additional money because the program perhaps isn't working or functioning as well as expected. And perhaps some of these distortions and uncertainty that are created in the economy by having a, a new program like this that is very large dissipate some of the demand for some of these new technologies. And maybe in some cases they accelerate it and cause certain kinds of disruption. And maybe in other places where things are a little less uncertain, folks are actually able to innovate and other folks get out ahead of the United States and they're able to reap the bounty of being the home of some of these innovative technologies. That's the potential risk of moving too quickly. And it's the potential risk of 
being overly pessimistic about what might happen here. So I'll acknowledge that your scenario is possible. It's possible that everything works out fine, but I think it's, it's also, it's also the case that the, the maximalist sort of negative potential universe that we might inhabit could be a lot darker than that. Well, you know, I'm a numbers guy. And again, if you look at like, what is the threat to national competitiveness right now? You'd have to say one of the big threats is that our, government is dissolving into dysfunction and we can't get anything done, you know, and, and why is our government dissolving into dysfunction? Well, it's because a mindset of scarcity has swept our country where now if 78% of people are living paycheck to paycheck and 57% can't pay an unexpected $500 bill, they're their heads down. Uh, They're just trying to say, Hey, if I make this, if I pay this bill, I can't pay that one. And I spend extra time doing this. Then I save a couple bucks Mm -hmm. and that reduces our, collective functional intelligence by 13 IQ points, according to various studies, where if you're living in a a state of scarcity, then you're less rational, less optimistic, less reasonable, you make poorer choices. And then if I come to you and say, hey, let's address some big problems, they're like, ah, you know, like, uh, like, I I can't pay my bills. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't have... Uh, and so, like, all these issues are tied together. Uh, and in my opinion, the biggest thing that's going to hold us back societally, um, uh, in terms of our national competitiveness, is just that uh, we can't agree on anything. Our government, as at this point, this flopping appendage, uh, you, know, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I talked to the guys in Silicon Valley about, like, AI and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They're competing against Chinese companies that essentially have a blank check from the Chinese government. Sure. Where the Chinese government's like, hey, we're going to build you server farms as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. You know, billions and billions of dollars worth of computing infrastructure, whole islands filled with computers. And if you're a Silicon Valley company, you're like, I'm willing to commit billions to this. Mm-hmm. But I can't commit as much as the Chinese government can. Yeah, I'd, and, I'd, and, I'd bet on those guys and, and gals. And, and so then the U.S. government is like, you know, like they just declared a, an AI policy with zero dollars attached to it last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so it, it, it's not that like uh, like we have to get our acts together. Right. Um, and it's not like uh, letting our people suffer so that a couple of companies can maybe save a couple of nickels at the margins, you know, like save us in mm-hmm. terms of our like national competitiveness. Like our national competitiveness is going to be greatly enhanced if our country actually has a positive attitude towards progress and our government can actually allocate some of our collective resources to support the way our industries should be developing. Well, I don't know if we'll agree on a lot of that, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there for anyone who's listened to this conversation and for folks who are curious about your program. I think you've answered a lot of questions, um, but education is another place where I think we've got some points of agreement. Um, and I, I would love for you to talk in a bit of detail, um, both about K through 12 education and what you sort of see as necessary there, but also higher education. Um, because I think in there in particular, you've highlighted the fact that we have these exploding costs of higher education, where in some cases you'll see sort of eight and 12% a year increases yeah, in the crazy. cost of higher ed, which is just obscene. Um, and there are lots of people who are struggling with student debt and are very concerned about those things. I'd love for you to give me some specifics um, about both areas and with K through 12 in particular. I mean, the thing that the policy I'm most interested in, I know you're a New York guy, I think from upstate New York, although maybe you live near the city now. Yeah. But I live in the city and the public school system here is deeply disconcerting to me. 
Um, it fails lots and lots of kids. And yep. what we need more than anything else is actual innovation because we've been educating kids for the same damn way for almost a hundred years. Yeah. But we also need choice. Like we need competition between these different educational institutions. And I want to control the dollars that are being invested in public education in my name. I want to direct those dollars, especially when it comes to my own child. Are, are um, you a parent? I am. Yeah. I've got a little girl. She's 14 months, um, two days ago. Congratulations. It's the best thing in the universe. Yeah. I've got a six year old and a three year old. Yeah. So now it's real. Very cute. Yeah. Now, now you're like, holy cow, I got to get some schools together. So my girl could show up and (laughs) be a total disaster. Well, I've I've thought about this for a while. My wife worked at a public charter high school in Washington, DC in Southeast DC and Southeast is, you know, it's right across from Berry Farms, this notorious project. And The things that that school did for those kids were just remarkable. And I don't know that a lot of your Democratic colleagues support um, choice programs. I'm not sure if you do, actually. I do. Okay, so I'd love for you to talk about sort of what you see, what your vision is there, because I think whatever's coming in the future, an actual education system that is up to the task of actually preparing people for the sort of future where they need to be perpetual learners who yeah. are interested in technology and familiar with it. We don't have that today. No, we don't. And I don't know how we get from here to there if we're not willing to be very disruptive in the way that we're thinking about education. Yeah, no, I agree with you on, on many, many counts, really all of it. And um, one of the things I'd suggest is that if you dig into the empirical data as to what drives student academic outcomes, mm-hmm. Uh, 70 to 75 percent of it is driven by out of school factors. So that's parental time, mm-hmm. education, stress levels in the household, nature of the neighborhood, et cetera. So if you talk to educators, uh, they're doing all they can um, while controlling 25 to 30 percent of the outcome. And so then if you were a society and you said, OK, we want our kids to have a better chance to learn. Um, you'd probably focus on the 70 to 75%. And so then you're like, well, how do I make it so that that kid's house is a better learning environment? Or maybe their parents spend more time with them, or maybe their stress levels are lower. And I'm going to suggest the most powerful thing we could do is send that family $2,000 a month. And then you might have one parent who's able to spend time with that kid uh, and the stress levels go down and uh, possibly the, the quality of like the physical environment changes and improves. And this is what studies have shown is you get money into families' hands, the kids learn better. So that's number one is just getting money into that house is going to help that kid learn. Okay. So um, you plug your cornerstone program there. Okay. Yeah. But the other thing too is like, man, we know these educational systems are battleships in the sense it's very hard to turn them. Mm-hmm. Like you show up and it's like freaking, you know, dozens of teachers that have been there for years and like a president. So, you know, you can't just like turn it on a dime. Mm-hmm. We can control our capital flows much more powerfully and efficiently than we can control our education system, like our energy infrastructure. You know, it's like we can like make things happen with capital in a way that we cannot with a lot of other institutions. But all of that said, uh, the way you try and help schools perform is one, I'm, I'm um, pro charter in the sense that I think uh, if you have different modes of delivering education to children, uh, it's a good thing. Parents having choice is generally a good thing. Um, I'm even open to, because as a parent of, of two young kids, any parent who chooses to homeschool their kids must really love their kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that is so much work. Sure. And so if there are parents who want to take that on and maybe pull some resources and like, like uh, homeschool their kids, I, I think we should be open to that and supportive of that. Um, 
uh, in terms of in, improving the schools themselves, what the data shows is that technology, unfortunately, is not like a cure-all no. at all. Yeah. In these you can't just drop laptops in all these kids' laps and everything is fine. Yeah, no. Like Fortnite and that's it. Yeah, it, 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 uh, technology generally tends to make strong schools stronger and does not help weak mm-hmm. schools. So it's not like a turnaround thing. Uh, so what does work? Paying teachers more works. Mm. Uh, you know, you get better teachers and uh, retain them. Uh, and that's a proven difference maker. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely try and update the curricula so that they're not rote learning, trying to prepare every kid for college. Because college... Uh, in, in many ways, our educational system set up for like an industrial era economy that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so among the things that we've done wrong, um, one is that we've over prescribed college to everybody where we've said, hey, if you don't go to college, your life is over. Nodding vigorously. Yes. Uh, and and then meanwhile, and this is the dark part, we then made college two and a half times more expensive. Uh, and Why? Um, the reason why is not to pay teachers. It's not even to pay for new buildings. It's to pay for administrators. The administrator to student ratio went up 150% mm-hmm. and like shocker, the price went up <laughs> like 200%. And aren't the subsidies that though that we've directed at higher education a large part of that story? Well, the subsidies did not cause the prices to rise. And let me explain this. So what happens is the, the price tag goes up Parents feel like they have no choice but to pay because, or your kids, like kids, well, I got to go to college. So, hey, it turns out it's like $50,000 now when, you know, like five years ago it would have been 40. Um, and then the parents are like, oh, snap, what do I do? And then the oh, so helpful government's like, it's okay. Well, we'll give you the whole thing. Like, we'll just like give you the whole loan. So now we're up to $1.5 trillion in student loan debt up from less than a hundred billion in like 99. I mean, this is all a relatively recent invention. And this 1.5 trillion in school loans, most of it for college, up to about 38K ahead. Uh, and it's crazy. And, a, and it's like this crazy anchor on, or like, like block of cement mm-hmm. on top of our young people where they're not going to buy homes. They're not going to start families. They're not going to start businesses. They're, they're just going to be sitting there paying off the, these loans forever. Um, you, they can't even discharge them through personal bankruptcy because the lobbyists got a hold of that and said mm-hmm. that. So, so that, that's the system we've did. So number one is we've overemphasized college and made college crushingly expensive. And I'm going to let you in on something even darker too, which is one reason why the folks who are all into free college are off base is that the underemployment rate for recent college graduates is now 44%. Yeah. They're, they're choosing the wrong majors in a number of cases. Yeah. It's like that. And if you come out of college, so the, the, um, it's actually easier to automate away a lot of, uh, basic entry level intellectual jobs like bookkeeping and accounting, uh, and like, mm-hmm. you know, insurance and paralegals, like a lot of that stuff you can automate away. Um, so what should we be doing? We should be channeling more kids towards vocational trades and apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, only 6% of high school students are in a vocational program. In Germany, that's 59%. Right. So maybe we can't get a 59, but you think we can get from 6 to 16? I mean, yeah, even yeah. that would be a major difference maker. Yeah. Then you end up also lowering the costs because typically those programs are shorter, less expensive, and those jobs are harder to automate away. And so then you back into high school and then you say, okay, what should we be teaching you in high school if it's not like all this college readiness stuff? Mm -hmm. Um, And so then you're like, well, what would skills would someone need for the 21st century? So it becomes things like uh, positive psychology and managing technology and, Mm -hmm. you know, human relationships and health and, you know, nutrition, like life skills, essentially financial literacy. You just try and start 
like uh, and it would be more relevant to these kids because right now they know they're just learning rote learning they can just look up on their smartphone all the time it's just like a bunch of hoops that jump through mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and and why are they doing it to go to college so so you you need to try and reframe uh our secondary school system to actually teach people about life uh and then the senior year spring when people don't learn anything anyway we send the kids to other parts of the country for a month where they live with another family uh, that also probably has a high school senior they sent away and then they work in that community mm-hmm. with 15 other kids who are also seniors in high school um, for that month and then they'll have seen 14 other kids from different parts of the country in another part of the country, they go back home. And then when someone tries to, you know, generalize about someone in another part of the country, they'll be like, actually I'm Facebook friends with someone from mm-hmm. Arkansas. And he's like a fine person. Uh, and then you end up increasing the chances that they might move to another part of the country for an opportunity at some point, because right now Americans are moving across state lines and multi-decade lows, which is a major problem if you're trying to create a dynamic society and economy. Mm-hmm. There are aspects of that that I agree with forcefully. I mean, I think even this this notion of, you know, that that lost year of high school that we all have for the most part, um, unless we're sort of on pins and needles wondering if we'll graduate. Most of us had a circumstance like that. I was fortunate. I had a, a great internship program um, in Montgomery County, and I spent my last year um, interning at NIH for like half of my time uh, in the school day, which was a, a phenomenal um, experience for me. Um, but with respect to college, just to, to push back on that a little bit, we I mentioned the subsidies and asked if they weren't driving up the cost some, and you suggested that, no, I mean, the parents, they look at this and they know that their kids have to go to college or else, you know, what will they do? But I mean, if the colleges are raising their prices astronomically year over year, and if people can't afford to pay for it and don't, and if there aren't subsidies coming to support it, I think they have to look for alternatives. And that's precisely the sort of dynamic that one would want from uh, a a marketplace, that the market would send signals to the universities, hey, you can't jack your prices up like that, essentially just to build a new student union. Higher um, or a new not the student union. So they get a donor to give them money for the student union. Money is fungible. So if they're getting the money in through tuition or from donors, they're using that money in ways that doesn't benefit students. I agree with you that government subsidies end up uh, like uh, passing the buck. I agree with that. You know, if parents couldn't borrow the money, then maybe the school could not stick it to them. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. But I I imagine, I mean, is that, would you make that part of your platform, curtailing some of that? Because that would be probably hard to sell. Oh, no. So I I think this entire thing is an epic uh, disaster where... Like in, in no sane world would you say, you know, it's a good idea. Just like load up the young people with one point five trillion in school loans they can't pay back. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, oh, let's crush our future prospects. Like yeah. That's a good move. Like, who does that enrich? Yeah, that enriches like school administrators who were hired 10 years ago. It's like, who cares? Yeah. So, so what I would do is I would forgive a significant proportion of student loan debt and just say, this is an economic stimulus. You're going to spend the money in the economy if you're not just writing it off. And you can be very good as a society and like make the lenders like mostly whole. Um, and then you go to, but you got to get off the backs of young people. And then you go to the colleges and say, Hey guys, why the heck are you two and a half times more expensive than you were? Uh, 20 years ago, what <laughs> happened? And then they'll look up and be like, oh, just educating people just got a lot more expensive. Well, I don't, and, and then, I, I don't and, mind forgiving some of that debt if we get rid of the programs, but I also don't necessarily want to make the lenders whole. 
Um, yeah. well, you know, so, some of the lenders, <laughs> she could take a haircut, especially if they're like sophisticated. Huge, huge like, haircuts. I'm fine yeah, yeah. with that. No, I'm fine with that too. <laughs> but then you go to colleges and you say, hey guys, in order to access these federal loans, mm-hmm. you're going to have to get your cost down. You're going to have to get your administrator to student ratio down to some reasonable level. And then the colleges are going to scream bloody murder and say it's impossible. Can't could, be done. could you phase that out over time? You that- could. And so then you just come in and say, look guys, I'm going to give you a few years. Um, but And you can do whatever you want. But if you want access to federal loans, then you're going to have to like, you know, like bring the ratio down. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, like magic, colleges would find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. I think so. And then they would find that it does not impact the student experience one iota. If you have the 18th vice dean of, you know, like administration, it doesn't matter. And yeah, so so <laughs> among the problems in our country is that... Uh, there are certain institutions that have just like become essentially businesses and just like grown out of control, like a lot of these educational institutions um, that are just like education is an absolute good. Like anything I do must be awesome. Um, and then they just kind of overgrown like weeds to a point where it's like now this uh, burden on, on American uh, students in the society. Yeah. Well, I've kept you for a while. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to say. I may still have some fundamental questions about your Keystone policy. Um, But I think, one, I'm grateful that you came knowing that I had some questions about it and were willing to sit down and answer some of those challenges. But two, I also think when you talk about education, um, this conversation that we've had held a lot more honest um, and I think reasonable than a lot of your compatriots um, who are also running for office. as Democrats who are interested in just sort of universal higher education, that'll, that'll fix everything. Um, I just don't think that is a practical strategy, not only because of the cost, but because it doesn't actually inform the real problems there with respect to the actual cost of education and the way it's being conducted. And the fact that we're simply not giving kids the kind of education they need to be competitive and to really fulfill their full potential and to take advantage of what I think could be a really and I think actually you talk about it in an optimistic way. So as we're punching out, I asked if you had anything else, but I'd, I'd love for you to do this. You do think that the AI revolution, that this next industrial revolution is a good thing. You do think that there are good things that are going to come out of it. Could you talk about some oh, yeah, of those I'd be happy benefits? To. So, I mean, AI has the potential to help us cure cancer and more effectively address climate change. And like, you know, like, uh, um, revolutionize our healthfulness um, mm-hmm. uh, in various ways. Um, but, and here's the big but, and this is what my campaign's about, is that in order for us to truly capitalize on the massive life-improving potential of AI, mm-hmm. we need to start thinking of ourselves as more than just inputs into a machine of capital efficiency. Because if we are putting ourselves in position where we have to compete against AI and and robots and machines and self-driving vehicles and the rest of it, then a lot of us are going to lose. And then if you have a lot of us losing, then the zero-sum game mentality takes over and everyone's going to look around being like, wait, like I lose, you win, I don't like you. And then like you end up not being in position to really have people benefit from the awesome potential Mm -hmm. uh, of AI. You know, you'll literally have people saying, we have to make self-driving trucks illegal Mm -hmm. because, you know, I like my job. And then you're like, you really like that job? That job's really tough on you. And mm-hmm. you're like, well, I still, I, I still yeah. like it. I still like it. Yeah. Uh, and and so, like, so one of the possible preconditions to being able to truly capitalize on AI's potential is putting people in position to to actually embrace progress mm-hmm. uh, more broadly. 
Um, but if we take advantage of this opportunity and we start seeing ourselves not as inputs into the machine, but as the machine serving us, that, that we are ourselves the purpose of this economy, that this economy revolves around human beings and it's a trickle up economy, mm-hmm. um, then the potential of AI to improve our lives is so vast. I mean, you, you can see it very clearly. And that's what we have to get to. Um, and the the path there is a mindset of abundance. Um, but how do you achieve a mindset of abundance in a country of our size and diversity? And I'm going to suggest that the quickest path to a mindset of abundance is actual resources that improve people's lives, get their heads up, so they actually have a sense of optimism and faith in the future and feel like their, their future is secure, their kids' futures are secure. And then we're going to be able to take advantage of the bounty that the fourth industrial revolution will bring us. The fifth column. As I mentioned, I'm a bit skeptical of the proposal uh, and my skepticism runs in two different directions. I'm not entirely sure what the future looks like, not entirely sure what the consequences of new innovations and automation uh, and the productivity explosion that's likely to accompany developments around AI and deep learning uh, that are taking place right now. Uh, It's truly exciting stuff. Uh, But are we going to see waves of automation that lead to unemployment and perhaps chronic and perpetual unemployment that lead to greater and greater income stratification um, and perhaps like a great deal of societal upset? Um, Or might it work out in a different way? Is it possible that what a lot of people imagine is a problem could be just a massive opportunity? If the circumstance turns out to be one where Jeff Bezos is buying everyone a Star Trek replicator and they can pretty much have anything, then what we're talking about here is a post-scarcity future. Are we going into a future that's likely to be post-jobs or post-scarcity? I'm not sure. That's the first question. The second thing, though, is I'm not entirely sure about the dynamics of a proposal like the universal basic income. What incentives does it create? What consequences might it have? Are the promises with respect to the kinds of economic growth that it might stimulate likely to come to pass? Or might they have some sort of deleterious impact? How do you price a program like this? How can you be sure what the future will look like once you've instituted a program like this? Do voters who've become accustomed to a program like the universal basic income insist that the benefit ought to be increased? How else might people's behavior begin to change? One thing I noticed after our conversation is that Andrew has a number of really passionate supporters online, some of which are gamers. Um, and the gamers for Yang, I, I think are actually pretty interesting to say nothing about the merit of the proposal. I do think it's interesting to, to consider what a world might look like where, you know, 10 guys who are all friends could decide to get together and buy a compound or at least rent one out for something less than the $10,000 a month that they would collectively be entitled to in a world where, Mr. Yang was president and his program had been implemented. What happens with those guys? Do they 
start a business together or somehow use that money in a productive way? Or do they maybe live in this house and play Fortnite most of the time? Is it a bridge to a future where they can find other ways to be productive, where those monies really do boost the economy and stimulate growth in some way? Or is it a future that looks a little bit more like Ready Player One? I don't know, but it's an interesting idea and ideas are worth debating. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. The fifth column, 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 column.